Hello everyone, and welcome to Neural Nebulae, where we unravel the mysteries around the artificial intelligence, clear up misconceptions, and explore its transformative impact on industries, its various use cases, and important considerations you need to make as you embark, embark on your AI journey. In today's episode, we dive into pre-AI data modernization and enablement. My name is Kobeb Zamot. I am a principal architect for AI strategy at Kalent, and joining me today are my friends and colleagues, Kenneth Hendricks, senior customer solution architect, and Brian Tarbox, an AWS community hero and a principal solution architect. Let's get right into it. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. This is a great topic. Can't wait. I mean, I guess I don't have to. Agreed. <laughs> Anytime you want to invite me to talk about data, I'm going to show up early. Um, so here I am. All right. Well, welcome to the show. And let's start with data culture. What is a data-driven organization, gentlemen? What does it take to get there? Yeah, I think it's a very good question. It's a very nebulous one. And I think that if you were to ask, you know, 10 different C-suites, they would probably have 10 different flavors of what their opinion is. Uh, my opinion is, and this is a hot sports take, but it's certainly my opinion, is that a data-driven organization is not one that's just using data to make decisions about their organization, but they're actually treating data as a product inside of their culture. There's this data as a product notion where just the same as you would treat um, any software product, you would treat your data the same. And a great example I like to give is that if you had to add a new feature to some software that you were selling to your customers, do you think that you would add that feature without doing your due diligence of an impact analysis, without gathering requirements, and without testing that feature before releasing it to production? And the answer is, in most cases, the answer is no. Um, and if that's the case, that's how you ought to be treating your data. Before you make any changes that impact your data, you would be doing an impact analysis. You would be looking to see what value you expect to get, and you would be testing that thoroughly to make sure that you're not disrupting your data. When you've totally embraced the value that data can bring for your organization, this is the mindset you, you start to get into. Uh, I've even heard some companies go so far as to during their onboarding process, uh, part, of the, um, part of the materials will demonstrate to their new employees what data means for that company, how they collect it, how they store it, and how they make value out of it, because it's such an important aspect of how they do business that it's the very first conversation that they're having with um, with new people. Kenneth, I think you're talking about uh, these these mythical well-run companies, <laughs> <laughs> because when you say when you say you couldn't imagine this company doing this, it's like oh, I worked at a one or two that, or I've, let's say I've heard of one or two that that do that, but. But, but you're you're exactly right. It shouldn't just be data driving your decisions, but data is data data is a first class citizen. Yep. Yep. And I, I've worked for some of those companies too. They like to fly by the seat of their pants. And um, you know the the old meme. Uh, I don't always test my code, but when I do, it's in production. Um, I, I I will tell you a quick story. At one point, one of my buddies uh, handed his code off to testers back when they were you know separate testers, and the tester said, Morgan. Your your code passed the test the first time, and Morgan said, "It's as if I tested it." <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So that's that's a very interesting take on it. So one thing that I'm realizing is that in order to adopt a data driven culture, it really starts with the people. So I'm curious if you gentlemen have any any sort of considerations you believe that organizations ought to pay attention to. When it comes to people, hiring skills, staffing for their opportunities, et cetera, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think it's always been the case that technology changes 
incredibly fast. And I mean, we used to joke that, you know, an internet generation was a year and now a gen AI generation is about 20 minutes. Um, so hiring for specific skill is less interesting. It's more, I think it's, I, I think the successful companies are hiring for, uh, people who have a track record of getting things done um, and and are smart and, and and are nice. I mean, Joel Spilansky, I think, had a, a, a meme about smart and gets things done. Um, I will add, um, and is nice, as is, is, is critical. Um, um, so, so, I mean, because things, you're, we're going to be learning all the time. I mean, I've been, I, I started this, uh, I started this, writing Fortran on punch cards, you know, uh, a million years ago on, on a deck system 10. And, you know, I'm still training and getting certifications on things and learning new things. And that's just, that's just how it is. And I don't view that as, as a burden. It's a, it's, it's sort of the joy of always learning new things. And I think that's what you want to hire for. Yeah, I think I think it's really important. You know, the, the technology, you know, just like you mentioned, Brian, it's, it's changing so fast that we can't even keep up with it. You know, you used to be in technology, you needed to be an ex expert at something. And usually that was one thing, maybe two things. And now it's almost like you need to be an expert at being able to adapt and to learn new things. Now, that doesn't diminish the value of being an expert in something. I still think that we absolutely need experts. I don't think we'll ever be at a place to where we need generalists. But um, I've observed this firsthand in a company that I worked for. Um, I worked on a data engineering team and we were Oracle enthusiasts, and we were all really, really, really good at everything we did Oracle. But as soon as it was outside of Oracle, we had no, no idea what we were doing. And this company made this technology shift to where they were trying to get out of Oracle and get into Postgres. And there was this massive team of data people. And they were all, you know, they were all panicking, like, what are we, what are we going to do? If we're not using Oracle anymore, what do we do? And so we said, listen, your, your goal is to focus on some outcomes during these sprints. We're, we, we understand that you know Oracle, but this is the outcome that we expect your team to achieve. And your team is going to have a lot of different cross-discipline people. You're going to have testers, you're going to have software people, you're going to have config specialists, you're going to have database specialists. And it was a very rough transition because they were very stuck in that mindset. But over the course of time, they started broadening their horizons and they started learning things like they started learning to write .NET code because they wanted to help during the sprints. They started learning Python because they wanted to do automation and do that automation outside of the database. And they shifted their mindset to focusing more on what they're trying to do for their customers and less about what skill they brought to the table. And it was a very powerful mindset shift that we watch occur. And I think hiring that particular skill and that mindset can make you head and shoulders above the competition because those are the people that are going to help you keep up with the pace of technology and they're not going to get outdated and force you to have to cycle staff. And cycling staff is very expensive whenever you have wholesale technology shifts. We, we went through a similar thing in a company I was at. Uh, we had done uh, quite a lot of um, Oracle uh, stored procedure writing. Um, and I was one of the folks who dove into that. And then it is funny, a week before release, they said, oh, by the way, did we mention we're switching to MySQL? <laughs> it was like, okay, okay. And you can sort of have one of three reactions. One is just to say, you know, hold your breath and say no. Another is like, okay, well, I'll dive in and, you know, MySQL stored procedures can't be at a certain level that different than Oracle stored procedure. But I think there's a third step, and, and this is this is the person you really want. It's like, since we're about to make this transition, let's just re-examine, why is this a stored procedure? Now, in our case, it turns out to be a really good decision, um, but not always. I mean, I mean, we've seen a lot of technical decisions are made as resume where it's like, 
someone had said, well, I don't have sort procedure on my resume. I'm going to write a sort procedure. You know, so it's 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 the levels of understanding and data just brings, you know, more more to that because data comes in all shapes and sizes and flavors. And I'm sure we'll get talking about different types of databases um, during this hour. Um, I'm looking forward to it. And with with all this talk about the need to keep up with skills at a much more rapid pace, do you guys see an increase in the value that consulting companies and consulting firms can bring to bear for customers that are trying to navigate these murky waters? I, I think so. It's it's um it, it it's funny. I've only been at Kalen for for seven months, and so I've sort of been been on both sides of the consulting company. And I think just as hiring an employee is is key and a, and a tricky decision, hiring a consulting company is also key. In that you know, uh, it's awesome to, if you can hire a consulting company who has some skills that you don't have or has them in more depth than you don't have, as long as they are committed to transferring that knowledge to you, and and you know, let's be honest, not all consulting companies companies are, um, but you know, I think I think uh, you know, sort of putting on my my Kalen hat, it's it's like we'd rather have happy customers. <laughs> so so I think I think there is so much. It's like yeah, let me. I mean, you know, I feel like I'm an expert in all kinds of things, but that doesn't mean I don't watch a YouTube video on the new technology when it comes out. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I really like this point about one of the main strategies for modern organizations right now and main concerns is to keep up with the pace of technology. So by all means, organizations ought to hire specialists. That's definitely still a priority, but there should be a focus on definitely understanding that this is going to be an ongoing, there's going to be an ongoing need for training and development. They they need to keep up with this uh, pace of technology. So it's important for organizations in the modern world right now to adopt a learning strategy and cultivate a sort of learning culture. Um, organizations really ought to identify their priorities that require upskilling. And they ought to empower their people's managers to create these individualized learning plans that align with these priorities and offer their workforce the necessary training time, courses and learning paths and things of that sort. They also really should be thinking about pushing autonomy um, on their team. So basically empowering their team to be autonomous, um, owning problems and supporting them when they require help. Um, it is through this autonomy, basically, that you heighten your employees' sense of um, ownership and drives them to go above and beyond. It's interesting. A, a, a corollary to the um, autonomy is the being willing to ask for help and offer help. So, you know, yes, I'm, I'm an empowered individual, um, to go do things and I'll ask for help, you know, and if someone, I mean, I'll say the, the funnest, the funnest kind of days I have is where someone posted in one of our Slack general channels, Hey, does anybody know how to do X? I'm like, Ooh, ooh I do. And it wasn't on my daily plan, but I get to go, you know, help them out. That's awesome. Cause you know, when you teach, you never know a thing as well as when you teach it to somebody else. And then, you know, you've done, you've, you've done a kindness. And I think the universe pays attention. I do believe in karma. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So I guess um, like with all these wonderful insights, I'm curious if we can dive a bit more into the technology itself. So what are these modern data workloads look like, both the transactional and analytical? Um, and what are these skill sets that maybe uh, stem out of that? What do you guys think? 
Yeah, you know, I think in general, we're still doing the same thing that we've done for the last 30 or 40 years with data. We're still storing it in some sort of a data store. Um, so, you know, the data itself has not really changed. It's the volume of data, the variety of data, and then the options that we have to to, to store it. Um, you know, we years ago, when you had a product, you would select some uh, database system, right? You would pick some relational data store. It was probably going to be Microsoft SQL or it was going to be Oracle. Um, for a little while, MySQL came on the scene and it took a little while for it to grow up and have features that could compete, but it became a really valid competitor in the database landscape. And it was very attractive from a licensing perspective. And during that time, people were forcing so much value out of the data store because they were paying a lot for it and they got locked into these, these monolithic data stores. And so now you've got this relational database, you're putting all of your data there and you're, you've got all this business logic in the form of store procedures, because why wouldn't you? You're paying a lot of money for the database. You want to be able to harness the value of it. And that was fine then and there, but now we have so many different options that are way more economical. You know, we've got, you know, we've got different open source database licenses. We've got managed databases where cloud providers will take care of all the infrastructure for you. Um, we've got things that can scale serverlessly so that you're not worried about provisioning and things like this. You don't have to have a DBA team and all that stuff. And so I think it dramatically changes the landscape of what your staff looks like because, you know, I like to say that, you know, some companies want to focus on running an IT shop where they want to have the admins that tinker and they they have control over all the bells and whistles and gears of all the systems. Those are the ones that want to host a database system on like a virtual machine or an EC2 instance. But then you've got the companies that don't want to do IT and they just want to focus on their IP. And so IP is greater to IT than them. And they want to let some cloud provider focus on hosting all of the infrastructure, on managing all the instances and doing all the maintenance and the patching and dealing with HANDR and all that fun stuff. And they just want to have people that add value to their shareholders and their organizations. And those are all the options that you get as a result of a modern data landscape. You know, we, we don't have to force round, round pegs into square holes anymore. We've got purpose-built data stores. We've got NoSQL data stores. We've got relational data stores. There's things like cold storage and hot storage that you can talk about and all these cool buzzwords you can talk about. At the end of the day, what it really means is that you no longer have to figure out how to work your product around database XYZ. Instead, you figure out what value you're trying to create and then you choose the right selection of these different data uh, technologies that are available to help create this custom solution to back up your, your product with. I think it's a really exciting time to be in data. I feel, I feel like, honestly, data is catching up to where application has been for the last 10, 15 years. Yeah, Kenneth, I really like what you said about um, IP is greater than IT. I, I haven't heard it said so succinctly. And it may just be that I've come from a background of a lot of startups, but I used to, and, and I've been on, you know, platform teams. And I've said, look, any anything that you can't go to your venture capitalists and say, we did this, so give us more money. If you can't do that, at a certain level, it's not interesting. It's like, woohoo, we wrote our own CICD pipeline instead of using one off the shelves. It's like, if I'm the VC, I don't care. Well, in fact, maybe I care negatively, but I don't care. You know, it's like, it's like, wow, you wrote your own backup system. Good for you. What should you have been writing? You know, so I think I think there's there's table stakes of security and privacy. And, and backup and, you know, mostly always on. Um, and, you know, I've, I've been, I've been a DBA, you know, I've, I've run upgrades. I mean, I've been a Cassandra DBA. I've upgraded the, the giant fleet of nodes and waited for everything to settle down. And I don't want to do that anymore. It's like, that's why, that's why, uh, 
Amazon invented RDS. I think I think one of the the really interesting things to come out of this is, okay, is my problem relational or document or key value or time series? Um, and maybe there are parts of my application that fit each of those. And so I think that the the tree. I mean, I love questions that don't have specific answers, but you know, I've got let's say I've got four products and one might be dynamo might fit dynamo white might fit re relational might one might fit mongo and so on so what do i do you know do i embrace all four and thus have to have my uh, the knowledge base of my of my uh, developers be bigger um do do those systems ever have to interact am i ever going to have to do ugh, some kind of join between Dynamo and Mongo, you know, <laughs> um, and and so you really have to to think think through those because they don't have great answers. But I think, and this goes back to the consulting company. Um, for lots of companies, this will be the first time they've hit that challenge. Whereas, pre presumably, we have the gray hair or no hair that that you know says, yeah, we've made the, we've had time to make the mistakes. <laughs> Absolutely. I really like that take on it. I, I really enjoyed the way you put it, Kenneth, uh, basically being able to bend the IT to the well of uh, IP. Um, and so this is one of the challenges that we're seeing today. And I'm curious if you guys believe that Kalent is helping in that and how it is helping uh, with that. I think it's, it. I was at a, a CXO roundtable giving a talk on um, data, a big surprise. and. There was this eye chart on the screen that showed a whole bunch of different data services you could use to build an analytic data platform in AWS. And somebody raised their hand and asked the question, can't you guys just give me one service where I can do all of this in one service? Why do I have to understand so many different things? And while I really appreciate the spirit behind the question, the answer is um, a very emphatic no. And there's a good reason for it. And it's because if just just ask anybody who wants to get off SQL Server and can't ask anybody who wants to get off Oracle and can't right it's because they put all their eggs in one basket they've got this monolithic solution that's solving all these problems a lot of them it's probably solving pretty well there's some of them it's probably not solving very well at all and then there's some problems that it can't solve right and they're stuck in this position to where you're in this conundrum of it's too expensive to move off but it's too expensive to stay here and that's the reason why you don't want a single monolithic solution for anything anymore I mean, let's let's rewind the clock the last probably 10 or 15 years and look at the major things that have disrupted the, the software um, development industry. You've had agile methodologies. You've got CICD and DevOps. You've got microservice architectures, right? Those three things are available in whatever is on your hat. I can't see. Serverless. Um, ser oh, yes. Serverless. And server absolutely. <laughs> Cloud and serverless services. How on earth did I forget that one? But, you know, you talk to a lot of seasoned data people and they think, man, that's really fantastic, but I'm a data guy and you just don't get it. Well, databases have states. So, yes, it is definitely a different, um, it's a different uh, challenge for sure. But, I mean, this is 2024. We can solve those problems in the database now. And if you haven't embraced those things, you're missing out on a, tr on a tremendous value. And it's not something that's brand new and sparkly and shiny. I mean, this, these are tried and proved methodologies that just now work for the data, data layer as well as they do the application because we've got such a wealth of different architectures that you can employ. I think that's where the, the the real value is, and I and I think we can borrow from some of the refactoring techniques that we typically associate with code um, to databases. I mean, one of my favorite is is the Strangler pattern, 
where you take a monolith and you know you extract out a feature and you know move it to the other place and then you know kill it off in the, in the monolith. Well, you can do the same thing in the data in the database. I mean, we've we've definitely seen places that have you know giant Oracle or MySQL um, or even Postgres for that matter deployments, and it's like, okay, are all of these databases interesting to you too? Are 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 all the tables interesting? You know, how many of those? Are vestigial. It's like grab a database instance or a table and move it out, and then get everything working, you know, in the new system, and then kill it off from the old one. And you do that, you know, bit by bit, and then eventually you can get rid of the old system. So it doesn't. It doesn't have to. Even your transition doesn't have to be monolithic, and and that's where I think you know, experience really comes in. Absolutely. You know, I think there's a lot of value in being seasoned in that regard with making some of those monumental shifts. If, you, if you're if you facing a technology problem and you're afraid to face it because you think it's going to be too difficult, it is a great opportunity for an expert to come in and help. And that expert could come in the form of support from Amazon. It could be a professional partner, professional services firm like Kalen, or it could be hiring a new person on your team that's an expert that's been there and done that. But being able to look around corners in these massive technology shifts is invaluable and helping you avoid some of the common pitfalls and gotchas and make the project turn out to cost more than it's going to actually net you over time. Well, you just said cost, which is my my, my favorite word. Um, and I'll, I'll give you just a, a, a quick a- anecdote of where just a tiny bit of expertise uh, can help. I'm, I'm a huge, um, I, have, I have a huge focus on S3 and cost, um, you know, cost and performance in, in S3, especially because I come from a medical background where, you know, it's, it's, it's petabytes, you know, and, and we're getting to zogobytes or whatever the heck the next, you know, <laughs> the, the next thing is, um, and even in S3, which is pretty economical, you know, you can have cost and, you know, I've seen, I've seen places try to save money by going to infrequent access, which is great. You save half the cost until if you're FDA, um, Com- compliant, the FDA says, hey, run that test again, and you have to bring all your terabytes back, and you pay the access charge, and so on and so on. And there's this subtle difference between intelligent, between infrequent, infrequent access and intelligent tiered infrequent access. And at a company that I can't name, I save them three million bucks a year by s- checking one box, you know, to go to intelligent tiered infrequent access where there is no data restoration charge. And so sometimes the expertise can be really tiny, but have incredible impact. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's a, that's a really good example of a, of a corner that expertise can help you look around. You know, I, I think about early in my days of being a software engineer and you go to Google and, you know, you're, you're searching for some phrase, I need to solve this problem. And you get back a list of a hundred things that you could try to solve the problem. And so you know, as a, as a very junior engineer, it's great. I can solve the problem and here's a way. And it's very exciting, you know, and it feels very fruitful when you're able to solve that problem. But the more experienced you get, the more you realize if I've got a lot of options, I'd like to have a little more information before I make a decision on which one of these paths I'm going to take, because there's some downstream implications that I just can't foresee into the future because I don't have the expertise there. You know, I may have written software for a long time, but this is an arena that I've never addressed before. And I have found conversations with people who have been down those roads before to be invaluable. You know, you guys have done this before. Help me understand what did you go through? How did you make decisions? What went wrong? How did you react when things went wrong? What would you do differently? 
those those sorts of questions and conversations are invaluable when you're trying to go down uncharted paths. Right. And and one of the, the tricky spots now is that if people are even willing to ask, a lot of times they're just asking um, a large language model. Um, and that has its own set of set of issues. And, I, and you know, I, I do it too. But I was asking, um, I was asking one, I won't even say which, which LLM it was, but I asked them how to solve this particular Python thing I needed. And it gave me an answer and I didn't like the answer. And I said, can you give me a better answer? And he said, oh, sure. Here's a much better answer. It's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> Why did you give me the terrible answer to start with? Um, so, um, and, and it's really interesting. If you want an experiment um, with the, these LLMs, say, you know, you are an amazing Python programmer. Give me a solution to this. And then say, now you are a terrible, you're the world's worst Python programmer. Give me a solution. And it will give you a solution. And you should really look at the two. That sounds like a lot of fun. I know what I'm doing right after this call. Right, right. <laughs> um, so, 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 yeah. There's, there's. You know, who, who was it at Amazon said there's no compression algorithm. There's no compression algorithm for experience. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So, yeah, I completely understand that some organizations, perhaps, in their effort to. Um, reduce their technical debt, they may run into the other extreme um, by trying to um, basically fall into vendor lock-in um, using a single monolithic system sort of thing. And so it's absolutely important that it further emphasizes the importance of having a skilled team and continuously developing their skills so that they're able to have this customized solution that works for their business needs, keeps up with their speed, basically. And definitely choosing the right infrastructure is absolutely important, and cost is a key one. Um, I'm curious if you guys have any ideas about what other considerations organizations have to sort of pay attention to when choosing the right infrastructure. Um, I think the really it's the pricing model. Um, the cloud pricing model is very different than the on-prem pricing model. And it can be economical if you work it the right way, but it can also be um, the exact opposite of that if you're not careful. And I often see companies who dive right into cloud from on-prem and they forget to make that that mindset shift of now we're in the cloud, we're on pay by the drink and I got to stop drink. I got to stop running the water fountain when I'm not drinking kind of thing. And so you have to be very careful. But that's not that's not the the important point I'm trying to make. The important point is that there's a lot of infrastructure that's available that can spin up and provide value and then spin down. And if you try to focus on what value you're ultimately trying to generate for your users or for your customers or for your stakeholders, you can then back into the right architecture that blends together the, a variety of different services. And all of those things will add up to the right cost that then reinforces and justifies the outcome that you're trying to achieve through those technologies. Um, you know, you think of things like transactional data stores, there's licensed databases, unlicensed, there's self-managed, there's managed services, there's serverless services, right? You've got NoSQL data stores and you've got SQL data stores. And you have all these different options to choose from. And oftentimes one of the decision metrics is, well, what kind of data do I have and how fast do I need it? And I think a new, a new metric that needs to be considered is what is the cost of running that service? Because you may want to run a different service to store your data that's a lot cheaper for you to run it in than some other service, even though it's not quite as fast, but maybe your use case doesn't require it to be as fast. And maybe the savings is going to far outweigh any increase in speed that you may actually get out of it, right? 
And I think that's very important to focus on. And it's a it's something that you have the luxury of inside of a cloud ecosystem. You know, on-prem, you've got a bunch of sunk hardware. You're mostly dealing with software and licensing costs or provisioning new hardware. But you're, you know, with those sunk costs, you know, you're you're either using the hardware you already paid for or you're not using it. And so it looks a little different in this environment. Um, I think there's also a really good blend of different storage options available in addition to the different types of databases. You know, Brian talked about S3 and different classifications of S3 and where you can store it. You know, now we have the luxury of cold, warm, and hot storage to where your cold storage may take you a while to get to it, but it's really cheap to store it. There's no reason to purge any data anymore unless you're, if you're trying to sanitize things or, or you know, it's just completely invaluable. You know, we've got warmer storage where it's a little faster to get to your information. Maybe it costs a little more than hot storage where it's lightning fast to get to, like in-memory type databases, um, you know, but you're going to pay a higher cost for it. And so it can be really daunting to look at all the different options and try to figure out, well, what's the right thing for me? And that's where I think it's really important to think about what's the value I'm trying to generate so you understand what 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 money you even have to, to play with when it comes to that budget. And the second thing is, you know, what if, what's the actual use cases? You know, do I, do I need this lightning fast or not? Because you can actually choose now, you know, whether or not you need a really fast, expensive service or maybe a slower or a normally paced service that uh, has a different cost model. And I think all those things together help you come up with the right size architecture based off the uh, the use case. And I think this is another case where <clears throat> we, we can borrow from the other side of the, of the table, uh, you know, the application side. It's like, how many, yeah, I, Amazon won't give out this information, but I'm, I've always been curious, what percentage of all EC2 instances are still M22X large? You know, essentially the default, you know, and and I, I bet it's ninety percent, and and you know how many companies have gone through and done you know a, a an instance type analysis to figure out what they really should use. Same for databases. It's like people hear, um, you know, for things like Dynamo that um, you know on demand um, on demand Dynamo scaling is more expensive than provisioned Dynamo. It's like okay. Does that mean I should never use on demand? No, because there's an there's a trade-off. It's like how spiky, how how many spikes do you have? How big are they? It might be that on demand is actually the perfect thing, you know, for you. Um, but it takes it takes some analysis and analysis, and it takes someone to tell a customer, there's this analysis that you could do that could really save you a lot of money. Yep, great points. Um you know, on a, on a related note, when I first started working for Kalen, there was a handful of customers that I talked to that had a very common thread and they were all saying the same thing essentially, which is we have an architecture, we have a product and it's, and it's working for us, but it's broken in the sense that I am ready to 2X, 3X, 5X my sales pipeline, but my technology can't keep up with it. And I need you guys to help us go through and make sure that our architecture is solid enough so that when we're, when we go to scale our business, that it can keep up. And to me, the problem is not the technology. The problem is that you have the ability for your business to grow and the technology is holding your business back currently. It's not a future problem. It is a now problem, right? And I think in the case where, you know, if you if you wanted to 10X your business overnight, could your technology keep up? If the answer is yes, you're probably in a great spot. If the answer is no, there's probably an opportunity. You know, you can, you can do some really crazy things with technology these days. It all comes with an expense and sometimes the expense doesn't justify the outcome, which is completely okay. But there are options out there that haven't always existed. And I think making sure that your technology not only so, um, enables but supports your business to run at the speed of business is a very important aspect for today's day and age. And especially, especially in, 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 in the data side of things, I mean, 
one of the the things that that uh, you know people have historically you know worried about is is sharding. It's like well, some of the um, announcements at reInvent on you know RDS, uh, you know, was it RDS Infinite Growth or there's you know something where they do uh, auto sharding with with you know Caspian under under the covers. Um, Charting may become, you know, less of a of a stumbling block, and so they're all, you know, you you need to keep you need to keep up with this. I mean, uh, even you know, it, it it's funny we're not particularly, you know, domain specialists. Although actually, I guess we have domain specialists for all kinds of domains, but mostly it's like for myself, I'll say I'm an Amazon specialist, and even just keeping up with Amazon for is is, is a full time job. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So I guess this brings us to the next question. What does this all mean for AI, for generative AI? How does a modern data strategy help us in our AI journey? Mm. Yep, that's a, another another fun loaded question. Um, you know, I think that so so first there's two flavors of AI. There's your analytical AI, which is what's been around forever, and then there's your generative AI which is the hot new thing that allegedly is going to solve every single problem in the whole wide world, right? <laughs> At least that's what we think. Um, but I, I mean, when it, when it, you gotta, one of the first things I learned as a technologist was GIGO, garbage in, garbage out. And if you have bad data and you feed bad data into a system, you should expect it to have not much more value than it had going in, right? And I think the same is true for AI. But interestingly, I think it's more applicable to analytical AI than it is to generative AI because with analytical AI, if you're trying to forecast your business sales over the next couple of years, for example, you need to have very good quality sales history, a good depth and breadth of that history so that you can use that information to train a model to make accurate predictions. You know, the, the less the less inclusive your data is, the more bias you put into that model. And so that's pretty cut and dry. You need good, clean data and you need the right amount of data in order to get good results out of AI. But when it comes to generative AI, it doesn't really have to be good, clean data. It needs to be accurate. But you can deal with a lot more unstructured information and this AI is, it's doing something different. It's not trying to make calculation predictions, it's trying to generate content. And so it just needs a bunch of content to be able to generate that content. Yeah, Kenneth, we were talking about this the other day and and the the, the point you made really struck me as, as one of those really interesting sort of counterintuitive points in that I would think that, and, and, and until you had pointed out, I had sort of been thinking, well, generative AI, it's the better, higher AI, so it must have better, higher standards for data. And it's like, no, it's 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 different. Um, I mean, you're right in that you outliers, you know, in um, in in analytic AI, you know, there there can be a real problem. And in generative AI, since we're since we're generating stuff and it's all and it's you know it's vector based, it's sort of stochastic. And so, you know, okay, you know, you still want good data, but, you know, an outlier isn't going to kill you. Um, yeah, absolutely. And this is, I mean, this maybe this is silly, but if you think about the analogy of an accountant, if you go to an accountant and ask him to predict how much taxes you're going to go owe at the end of this year, he's going to ask you for all of the data about your finances. He wants to know how much money you made and where you made it and how much money you spent and where you spent it. And it's very important that you don't miss anything. You have to give him everything. And the more holistic and complete that data is, the more accurate his answer is going to be on what your actual tax burden is for the for that year, right? And that's why you need that data and you need it pristine. But if you want to talk to the person about tax advice, like you don't need to have your data ready. You need to just be able to have a conversation. That conversation requires the ability to speak about it, 
right? But it doesn't require that you have all of your data and have it all ready. You can start having that conversation. And so it's, you know, it, you're still talking to a computer at the end of the day, but it's it's two very different things that it's trying to do, which also has two different, very different requirements for what your data ought to look like before you're ready to start engaging with uh, those types of services. That's a great, that's a great metaphor. It's, I mean, I could imagine, you know, saying, you know, how much should I write the check for versus, hey, conceptually, should I be doing a side business? You know, those are both legitimate, but very different. Correct. Yep, absolutely. You know, and I think also um, a lot of companies hear the term AI. They think that Gen AI is replacing analytical AI or that they need to be in a really good place in order to start using generative AI. And, you know, there's, there's not a black and white answer necessarily, but I mean, today these LLMs are so powerful. The value they bring to bear is that they're already powerful off the shelf. You can have very good conversations, you know, just like you talked about earlier, Brian, with asking for different Python outputs, right? Like you didn't, you didn't go in and train the thing how to write Python. You didn't teach it what a good developer is and what a bad developer is. You just ask the questions and it's already aware of that level of information to be able to give you that kind of output. And so that's a great example of where with no data at all, you can already start leveraging these, um, these different models, these foundational models that are available to generate value for you. You can also augment them with your own information using things like retrieval, augmented generation, et cetera, right? And that's places where you start plugging your data in. And if you just want to do like a vanilla knowledge base to where you say, you know, how do I work on this machine that I've got in my factory? It can go read through a million pages of a PDF and it can summarize the output for you, right? And that's unstructured information. You don't have to have that in some fancy database to be able to do those kinds of use cases. Those are pretty easy to do. And so there's a re relatively low lift for being able to materialize some of these generative AI cases that looks considerably different if you're trying to do some sort of an analytical type model. Sorry, my cat is wanting to join the conversation. Whoa. Okay. Um, join us. Yeah. And the thing is, there's so many there's so many different ways to do it. I mean, I'll say uh, totally outside of Canada, I'm, I'm doing a little a, a side project experiment where I want the information of our my local town's bylaws and finance and meeting minutes and stuff to be available. And I was like, okay, I could go down the whole rag, you know, um, approach or use bedrock, um, you know, agents and knowledge bases, which are very cool, I will say, and watch for a, an upcoming episode on that. But just as a start, I took the list of our, I found a PDF that was our, all of the, the, the bylaws of the town. And I stuck that in the prompt. And I said, based on this, you know, what are the rules for, uh, I don't know, an in-law apartment? And it did it. And I didn't have to do rag. I didn't have to do anything. I mean, prompt engineering can get you so far. Now, so far and maybe not all the way, but there are so many, it's, it's so interesting. And, you know, knowledge, I mean, you said rag, rag is, rag is so cool. And maybe knowledge bases make rag, you know, automatic. Right. Okay. That's kind of interesting. So, okay, rag, you had your six weeks in the sun, maybe. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I really like this take on it. Absolutely. One of the, one of the great selling points of generative AI is in its ability to basically give you a trained model, which you didn't have to suffer through training it and bring its power towards towards your data through retrieval augmented generation and tools of that sort. So it's pretty much the heavy lifting has already been done. It's a, it's definitely a great tool. And what analytical AI still requires that clean data comparatively to generative AI, it's, it's a lot more clean. And so it requires a lot more effort. but what does, what does that mean to organizations? Um, 
Do they have to really wait very long to use analytical AI? Do they have to have an excessively um, complex and meticulous path to cleaning their data for analytical AI? Well, I think it, I think it depends. What problem are you trying to solve? And Kenneth, I know that's what you were going to say. <laughs> that sums it up very nicely. Um, yes, I, I had a mentor at a job previously, and he would often interrupt meetings and say, listen, can somebody just tell me what problem we're actually trying to solve here? And I think that's a very important question to get out of the way in the beginning, right? I mean, if you don't have a target, you don't ever know if you're going to hit it or not. Um, right. And and it's funny, at at, at, at reInvent, uh, where's you know, keynote, which was meant to be, you know, he always has the best keynotes. You know, he's the, the soul of the company. And he was halfway through this keynote before he even said anything about Gen AI. And he was saying old, you know, AI solves, you know, can solve the lion's share of the problem. So figure out, you know, are you doing, are you doing sentiment analysis? Are you figuring out how many sneakers are going to, you, you need to buy? Are you trying to analyze you know, fraud. Are you listening to a call center call and trying to figure out what to offer? These are all very different, um, and you know they they have different needs and different requirements. Um, and it may it may be that a bunch of Python if then else's can get you most of the way you want. So so don't assume, so I'd say you don't have to wait because your question was do I have to wait and be perfect? It's like no, because none of us are perfect. Um, but it's think about what you're doing. What a crazy notion that is. Think about what you're doing before you start doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's a, more of an emphasis on the outcome you're trying to achieve than it is the technology, um, which is, it's a, it's a nuanced difference, but it's an important difference. Um, you know, I, I I did talk to, when, when Gen AI became um, all the buzz and everybody wanted to talk about it, um, I talk about it like it was so long ago, it may even still be in those times, I don't know. Um, but, you know, it was it was literally the topic of every single conversation I had with customers and what was interesting is the number of those conversations that turned out to be solvable with analytical AI. And that's that's not so monumental necessarily, but the, the really important undertone is that the problem that you're bringing to bear could have been solved with technology that's been tried and proven for the last decade, right? We've been solving hard problems with analytical AI and solving them really, really well for quite some time now. And so here's a business problem and some business pain you're experiencing that could have already been solved. You didn't need to wait for Gen AI to disrupt things, to have those conversations and learn it. And so I think those were very valuable lessons that some customers um, were learning. But I mean, otherwise, you know, you, you, we've talked a lot about different data stores and obviously you're not going to break down your monolith overnight and put it into a bunch of fragmented data stores. And obviously you're not going to solve any data quality issues overnight. And so if the question is, you know, how long do I have to wait and how much effort do I put in before I can use analytical AI or generative AI? And I think the answer is, um, you need to be aware of the problems that you have and log that all as technical debt somewhere to get your arms around the scope of where you're at today, where you would like to be and what it's going to take you to get from here to there. But you don't have to get there as a finish line to start using AI. I think you can start carving off use cases. You know, if you've got one analytic AI, if we just go back to the example of predicting sales forecasting, maybe you've got tons and tons of data and sales data is just one piece of that data start getting that data in better shape and getting it into some analytic area like a like Redshift and S3 as a data lake house and then running AI off of that. And then once you see that value, let that kind of snowball and then just continue to feather in sources and just chip away at that technical debt. You know, paying off all your technical debt before you do this is not as important as having your arms around it and then focusing on creating value with small, small changes or small uh, projects that you have to help steamroll that and to get... Um, 
uh, fans and to get uh, rallied, rallied support within the organization. Right. I mean, it's in, it's interesting because analytic AI, um, not it's you know tried and true, and but but that doesn't mean it's easy. You know, it's just that there are people who who have have done it. So, you know, again, it's maybe the case for for consulting, and that it's you know it's not it's not impossible to learn. It's not crazy hard to learn, but there's there's some learning there. Um, and but but I think also anytime you take on a new technology, um, you know, do it on some small project that isn't mission critical, <laughs> and learn. Absolutely. So I just wanted to add just one more thing that. Um, around the same uh, talk track here is about one of the challenges facing analytical AI besides keeping your data clean and and having that foresight for a strategy to snowball uh, the, the the progression is enriching your data. So how can we get more data for our use case? So AWS made many strides toward that and one of their um, announcements which happened earlier 2023 and then later at reInvent is this clean rules, which basically allows companies to collaborate when it comes to this data. Uh, if a company has a data source that you're interested in and it, it works well for your use case and for their benefit as well, then you can actually share that data together without having to explicitly share copies of that data. So you're not sharing the raw data with your collaborator in this scenario. So what you're sharing will be basically a sort of catalog of your data. And you have the access control and the sort of privacy preserving solution along with it to allow you this fine-grained access control over your data with your collaborator. Collaborator, um, And so it basically becomes the data provider's responsibility to ensure the data is clean and ready for ML while the collaborator can go ahead and use that data to train models directly without having ever seen the full um, sort of tabular data, without having to see the full data um, preserving basically the privacy. So this is just one of many um, advancements um, AWS is, is sort of introducing to help um, analytical AI. And I think there are plenty more. Right. I mean, <clears throat> a really interesting space uh, is the uh, uh, insights and Q. And, you know, Q is still a work in progress, but um, the ability to go into like a SageMaker uh, notebook or a CloudWatch, you know, a log screen um, and ask a an English styled question um, that's really powerful you know it's like find me all the log messages where such and such is the case and it will go figure that it will go figure out the query language you know you know to to do that for you or you know you're in you're in a sagemaker uh, notebook and you've got some data and you've done various transformations you can say hey how would I if I wanted to answer this question instead how should I transform the data? And very often it will give you exactly the code to run, and then you just click it, and then you, you're you're off to the races. And one of the, the the real powers is reducing the cost of experimentation. You know, I think that's a cloud thing. You know, in general, hey, I can spin something up and I can experiment with it, and that's one type of of sort of on demand computing. But there's also maybe on demand querying, on demand you know uh, AI driven querying of Hey, can you t can you tell me such and such? And maybe it does, and maybe it doesn't. But there's there's probably all kinds of insights hidden in your data that you don't know about. Yeah, I think that's an exciting realm to watch. Um, we're abstracting the need for a lot of data engineering between questions and answers, 
um, backed up, of course, by good quality data that's stored in the system. Um, those use cases are really intriguing to me. Yeah, it's, it's an exciting time. What a time to be alive. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you, gentlemen, for sharing these great insights. And basically, this concludes our episode of Neural Nebulae. Um, we hope we left you with something to think about. And as you pursue uh, your innovation with, uh, with AI, and as usual, if you enjoyed this show, please leave us a rating, review on the platform you're listening on, and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next time.